This is Michael Easley in Context. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. What is it about going to an event like that that gets our juices flowing, let's put it that way? What would you do? What group would you stand in line to see? What sporting event, what NFL team, NBA team, What? what's your poison? <laughs> what would you be willing to pay a lot of money for, for a ticket, to carve part of your day uh, out, to go get in line, to find a place to park, grab something to eat, to experience an event? Now, again, I have, I'm not saying these are bad or wrong. I'm just asking a question. There are certain things that come to town, and you're going to go. I'm going to go. I would, I would not miss that opportunity. It, it strikes me as a preacher, as a teacher, as a man who's tried to explain the Bible most of his life, it strikes me that all of us, myself included, would love to go to certain events, to concerts, to movie openings, to plays, whatever it may be. But when it comes to going to church, the attitude has become more and more sort of a, well, if there's nothing else to do, I guess I should go on Sunday because it's important to go to church. You see it in young couples all the time. When they're young in their married life, they might be involved, but they have no children, they have fewer responsibilities, and they tend to use those weekends for other things. Fine, well, and good. You start having children, then you see this need for, oh, we need to bring our children up in a local church. And so maybe you drag your son and daughter to Sunday school programs. As they get older and you go through the teen, junior high, high school, teen years, college years perhaps, it changes. They may or may not be engaged in those kind of ministries. And by the time they go to college, now they're on their own and you're back to square one. What are we going to do? Is church another activity? Is church another part of our week? Is it something on the calendar that we do once a week? We mow the yard, we wash clothes, we run errands, we go to the grocery store, we go to church. Or is church an experience that transcends a schedule? Is a local assembly more important than we may think? And these two broadcasts, I want to challenge your thinking as well as mine, uh, that the local assembly is not just a scheduled event that we should attend or we should be a part of, but it is an expression of the gathering together of God's people to worship him. Something happens in that gathering that is hard to define. And so we begin by looking at the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, where he articulates a great phrase, assembling together, and what it means to join in the local family of God. So today and next time, we'll hear a message I originally gave to the Fellowship Church here in the Nashville area. So we'll have part one today and part two next time. Let's pick up the message thinking about assembling together as the body of Christ. When you uh, perhaps have your, your favorite band, a concert, a musician, artist comes to town, thank you, Tim, um, you, you might try to get tickets when they come. You go online, and of course, the first day and date those tickets are released. Most are bought by brokers. They're gone, but the few remaining are snatched up within a few minutes, and whether it's Coldplay or George Strait or Martina McBride, whoever it is that you want to go see, it's gone. They're, they're history. And um, if you're like my two oldest daughters, uh, they, people plan their day around going to these events. 
might get off work early, might even take the day off, he might go downtown to get a meal beforehand, get a place to park. It becomes an all-day event to get ready to go to this concert. And then, of course, when the gates open and you stand in line with 75, 80,000 of your closest friends, and you inch your way along smelling all olfactory senses from perfume to B.O. and all points in between, and you finally get in the auditorium stage venue, and if you're like most people, they want to stand on the ground, uh, on the floor, and on the stadium, right up front, bless your heart, but you want to do that? And then you have the warm-up bands, sorry, Music City, but the warm-up bands come out, and finally, whoever it is you've, you've paid the money to see comes out, and it, it's... Probably what, you audio engineers can tell me, the first third of that auditorium venue, you can't differentiate anything. It's just a wall of noise and data coming at your ears. It's just so loud. And then you have the additional volume of everyone around you singing all the songs. And so it's sort of this cacophony of you know, bedlam around you. But because you know the song and you know the artist, you just join right in and it's like the time of your life. And uh, if you're sitting in box seats, you're watching the mobs down there. And, and then after it's over, you get to quickly go home. Yeah. Hour and a half, two hours of getting out of the parking lot. And you get home and you're late. You've probably eaten too much, drunk too much. You're overexpended. And then the next day, maybe you have to go back to work. And the next morning, you're tired and groggy and you get to work. And it's the best concert in the world. How many of you have done it? I've done it when I was young and foolish. I mean, uh, when I was young. You might spend hundreds. You might spend a couple thousand dollars if you do it, depending on how you do it. Box seats, eating out a nice place, spending a half a day down there, maybe parking up close for the extra tickets. You might spend a lot of money. Compare and contrast that to our view of coming to church. Sleep in. Not that big a deal. I really don't like it that much. I don't know anybody there. I can watch it online. I'll catch it later. Now, if you don't know me very well, please hear me very carefully. I hate guilt and shame as motivators. I hate them. I abhor them. I don't like them in my own life, and I don't want you to hear me saying that. I'm making an observation. If we want to do something, we'll do whatever it takes to go do it. Now, church is not a performance. It's not an entertainer. It's not entertainment. It's not uh, something you listen to your car over and over and over again until you have every lyric memorized of every song that band has done. It's a different environment altogether. But asking the question, why are we motivated to do the thing we want? Spare no expense. It's a celebration. It, we'll do it. We'd love, we'd love to go see whomever. But go to church, meh. Get there late, meh. Leave early, meh. One is the family of God. One is entertainment. It's music, it's emotional, it's incredible, it's fun, it's great, all points in between. Why the difference? I suspect there are a lot of factors, but I would sum it up into consumerism as the word. But consumers, obviously we eat food, we have to replace clothes, you know, you, we, we use things. But consumerism is the ideology that is bigger, better, newer, more all the time. That's why some of you already have September 9th on your calendar. You will order or you will stand in line to get the new iPhone 6. That's consumerism. Do you need an iPhone 6? No. Now, you might, you say, well, I need one because I have a five. I have a four. 
Mine's so old. Now, we should know from technology that no matter what we buy, what, in 12 to 18 months, that iPhone 6 will be yesterday's news, and the, the rumors for iPhone 7 will come out two weeks after iPhone 6 is released. That's consumerism. What, what does it say about our culture? What I want, by the way, it's called an iPhone and an iPad for a reason. It's not just marketing. It's about me. And so consumerism is what does this do for me? As a Western culture, a Western mindset that is disposable, bigger, better, newer, more, insatiable in our appetites, when we come to church, that here's church in a synopsis. We sing songs we don't normally sing. We sit with people we don't normally hang with. And we hear a sermon that is what? Always too long. One person says short. <laughs> Not my wife either. Um, I would say boring. Maybe too long and too boring, if you want to be truthful. We know that. We're not naive to it. Um, so you come into a cultural context where this isn't like anything we do in any other place we go. If you go out with your friends, you go to a meal you like, whatever you want to do, a show you like, you make those choices. But you're coming to church. It's a completely different thing. Our backgrounds, our experiences, the way we were raised all play into it. Rob Howard and I were talking about if you come to fellowship and your child grows up at fellowship, that's all he or she knows, and they will go off to college and maybe find their way to a liturgical church or a church that looks like a church, not a warehouse or a barn, and they will be awakened by something perhaps, and they will find something they didn't have when they were children, and you will have all sorts of mixed emotions about that. But to think that your child's view of church is a warehouse or a barn is quite interesting if this is all they've ever known. Some of us raised in denominations with very fancy buildings and choirs and robes and organs and different music than we sing today, hymns and so forth. When we come to church, I'm going to try and ask and encourage you to think about it a little differently. We're starting Ezra next weekend, and it will be a stretch. Bill, Lloyd, and I, uh, Lloyd typically is the one who's tasked to pick the book, but then Bill and Lloyd, uh, Lloyd and I, excuse me, Bill and I will certainly weigh in, and once in a while, it's not like a... It's a diplomatic process. We talk through it. And we have met many, many times. We've all had assignments, and we'll come together. We'll storyboard the book. We'll talk about major theological themes, where we want to go. The mitigating factor is always, how long do we keep our people in one book of the Bible? Because your ability to listen, our ability to engage at that level, we know the culture. So it's like, how do we do this in a way that we're not skipping over the Bible, but not burying you with details where you're bored out of your mind? You're already bored, we know that. We don't want to bore you anymore. So how do we do that? And we spend a lot of time and prayer. I mean, we actually pray about it. We actually pray. We say, let's, let's talk, take this offline, pray a few days, and come back and meet again. And we'll block out two hours, and we'll graph it and chart it and talk about themes and what are the outcomes, why teach a book. We put a lot into it because we want to serve you. And it's the Word of God. We want to teach it well. But what do you do when you come and you expect something out of it? In your program, there is a handout, another insert, and it's made in a, a cardstock. You can hang on to it if you want, pick up an extra one if you want. The idea was for you to keep it with your Bible, perhaps. And it begins with preparing you know, before you come to church. We don't spend half a day thinking about coming to fellowship on Sunday morning. You probably didn't go to bed early and lay the clothes out and get up on time so you wouldn't miss it here. And probably more arguments on Sunday morning about going to church than Monday through Friday going to work. 
So preparation begins a long time before your arrival here in the parking lot. But let me just make some observations about when you come to church, some things to keep in mind. Number one, assembling. Assembling together as believers is important. God views what we're doing right now as important. Would you read that passage with me? Read it together. We'll read it in unison from Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, this passage is interesting. The author of Hebrews uh, tells the, the believers, uh, you need, when you come together, I want you two things. One another stands out. You're to encourage one another, and you're to stimulate one another. Let's take it apart. Consider means to understand, to observe, to study something. If you have children, you have some that are athletic, some are artistic, some are mathematical, some are science-oriented. And what's your job as a parent? You're trying to find something that they, he or she can sink their teeth into. Do they need to play an instrument? Do they need to play a sport? Do they need to read? What is it? And you fan the flame as children, right? Because they're all different. None, they're not even remotely similar. They're all unique. And so your job as a parent is to consider, understand, study your child to say, these are the kinds of things that might interest you. And then you fan the flame to encourage him or her down that direction. That's what the word consider means. Stimulate is in the medical community, paroxysmos. Paroxysm, if you have a child that's had asthma, They've had a paroxysmal attack. Epileptics have a paroxysmal seizure. What does it mean? It's a sudden acute thing that happens, and you've got to stop and deal with it, basically. And it can be used in lots of ways in the medical world. Here it's used, study, consider, look at how to provoke one another. How to stimulate one another. How to gourd us in a way. How to, you know, like an electric shock. How to get us out of our complacency to what? To love and good deeds. Study, observe, understand how to come alongside and stimulate, provoke each other to love and good deeds. And then he says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. The word assembling here is a root comparative word to synagogue, synagogue. Soon, alongside with goge, an assembly. The synagogues were the assembly of the Jews, segregated men and women. And the assembling... Some churches call the, the assembly, the Brethren Church likes that term, is a little different than the ecclesia, the church. We did a series on ecclesia a couple of years ago. Ek means from or out of or uh, taking something away. And kaleo is the word called. We put it together to make this word church, ecclesia. What does it mean? The ones who are called out of Judaism, pagan worlds, you are called out of that world, that culture, and you're called to be part of the family of God. So you have the ecclesia, the called out ones that are to synagogue, they're to assemble. It makes great symmetry. When Paul went to the missionary cities, he went first to the synagogue. That's where the pious Jews would gather, and that's where he preached the gospel. So the gathering, the assembly, let us consider, study, provoke one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. We don't know the backstory. We can make some educated guesses, but the application is evident. We need to encourage one another not to abandon the assembly. It's important that we gather as a body of Christ. God views what we're doing right now is important. He's interested, not in your church attendance. He's interested in you assembling together 
look at the, again at the passage. Encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need encouragement. The word encouragement is also related to the word Holy Spirit, parakaleo, the one called to walk alongside. And an encourager does what? They walk alongside you and they encourage you. So if you're going through a divorce, you'd like to talk to somebody who survived that. If you just got diagnosed with cancer, you want to walk with somebody that just went through cancer. Whatever it is you're facing, you, you like to walk. I do. I hope you do. You want somebody to come alongside you. That's why I spend 10% of my time talking to people with back issues, because I know what it's like. And I talk to them when I'm facing the next thing, because I want to know what their experience was like. And we're walking together. Let us consider, study, understand how to encourage one another, how to provoke one another to love and good needs, not forsaking our assembling, as is a habit, but encouraging all the more as you see the day draw near. John Calvin in the 16th century wrote these words about this passage. There is so much peevishness in almost everyone that individuals, if they could, would gladly make their own churches for themselves. This warning is therefore more than needed by all of us that we should be encouraged to love rather than hate, that we should not separate ourselves from those who are joined to us by a common faith. Perhaps you've seen the cartoon. There's lots of iterations of it, but there's a guy on a deserted island. He's been abandoned there for a long time, and a boat goes by, and they send a dinghy to the boat, and he's so happy he's going to be rescued, and they pull in in the dinghy, and there's three buildings on the island. And they go, what, are there more people here? No, just me. Well, why three buildings? Well, that one's my house. And he shows them his little house that he built. And he goes, what's this one? That's my church. And they go and look at it. You built a church? Yeah, my church. What's that one? Oh, that was the church I left. Silly joke, but it's illustrative. By the way, you're part of a church that left a lot of churches. In fact, most churches in America left churches. It's diagnostic, not, not a prescription. I mean, it's the way it is. And our church is found on some different things that other churches don't do or believe, be that as it may. We're not to forsake the assembling together. In light of the present world affairs with ISIS with the murder of Nigerian children, the beheading of children by an evil group, what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in our own borders, the threat of terrorism globally right now. 9-11 is around the corner, guys. In light of all that drama, even if you're not engaged in it and don't really, it's sort of back there, you know, way in the back of your mind, I don't know how I would do it apart from a community of faith loving Christ walking in the same direction. Because I could get really sucked into this stuff and become kind of crazy with it. And I've stepped back and go, God's sovereign. And I want to do that with people that have the same view. And we're encouraging one another all the more as we see the day. Could this be the day drawing near? I don't know. But it, you, it, the one does wonder. When a group has made it their mission to destroy Israel and reclaim that piece of land, that's always been the tipping point from a geopolitical standpoint. Well, Secondly, we're choosing to worship together. We're a unique gathering of God's people. When the church began in Acts chapter 2, 2 verse 42 became the four foundational pieces of that church. In fact, read that with me on 242, would you? They were continually, let's start, let's start that again. I said together, let's read together. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to prayer. These four foundation pieces have not changed. Let's take each of them briefly. The, the apostles' teaching is what basically is your New Testament. Some of you came from a tradition where you heard the term the apostolic teaching of the cross. That's the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, all the books we have in our New Testament are written by the apostles who are what? Explaining the Old Testament as a result of the birth of the church. So they're devoting themselves. When the church is meeting in Acts, these books haven't been compiled yet. When the church was new, the Gospels were just now being, the, the ink was, was wet on, the, on Mark being the oldest. These were being comprised. Paul's letters are 60 AD after the death of Jesus, those, those letters are penned. So they're explaining things that happened to these new churches and new congregations, if you will, about the Old Testament that all center on the cross of Christ and the birth of the church. So that's why the teaching of Scripture is foundational at fellowship. So when you come here, we're going to open the book of Ezra. I would be curious to find any church within 300 miles that's taught the book of Ezra in the last two, three years. Even online, probably some really boring guy, right? But when you look at the Bible, we're not going to teach you six how to be a better friend here. Or how to have a more fulfilling life. We're just not going to do that. Well, we might shrink wrap it based on a book, but we're going to teach Jonah and Luke and Ephesians and Ezra, and that's what we're about. Secondly, the apostles' teaching, secondly, to fellowship. Uh, a, a fellowship is a communal idea. When you come out of the church, out of the culture, Judaism or a Gentile world, you are no longer affiliating with those groups in antiquity. You weren't welcomed. So the church became your family. Breaking bread is a summarily concept. It's not just the Lord's table action. It's, it's a commemoration of all of the person and work of Christ. And we break bread together to remind us of our salvation, of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that we're one in the body. That's what the bread image is about. We're one loaf. We're one in the body. And we're fellowshipping around the breaking of bread. And then prayer is the fourth one. And those pieces have not changed. John Stott writes in his book, Between Two Worlds, God has spoken. Scripture affirms that God has spoken through both historical deeds and explanatory words. How dare we speak if God has not spoken? By ourselves, we have nothing to say. He continues, Scripture is God's word in written form. The written word, as well as what becomes the apostolic teaching of the cross, will be God speaking through his word. So God has spoken, and He is speaking in His Word. I'm not sure what your assembly is like. I'm not sure what your church is like. I hope you attend a church that a person opens the Bible and explains some of it. We call that exposition, that we're explaining the Bible. And as John Stott wrote, God has spoken. How dare we speak if God has not spoken? A man's opinions are important. They're interesting. They might even be novel. But the concept that the local assembly gathers together to hear the very word of God is no small issue. It should be, I would argue, the most profound experience of our week corporately that you and I are gathering with other men and women of faith trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, trying to limp along in this life of faith. Look at it this way. You've got 168 hours in the week. Can you give one hour of that with a group of people, imperfect all, who are trying to worship God, who are growing in faith, 
or trying to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. I don't know of any place you can do that other than his body. It is his body that we participate in and with. We are part of a community of faith. We may not always want to go, but I would encourage you not to look at it as attending, but as assembling as part of the most magnificent audience on the planet. Join us next time as we think about how and why we attend church. This is Michael Easley in Concord.